gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Greetings and salutations, patient listeners. Welcome to yet another delayed episode of Superman in the Bronze Age, the only Bronze Age podcast that can't seem to be released on time. I apologize for another late episode, folks. Work's been crazy lately, so much so that I have enough overtime to equal a sixth day of work plus an extra 45 minutes. So let me tell you that by the time I get home, the last thing I want to do is sit in front of a computer and type up notes and record stuff. So I am sorry. Plus, my wife Angie's been sick a little bit lately, so I just haven't had the energy to do much more than stare at the wall and slip slowly into madness. But on the plus side, this episode is sponsored by InStock Trades. They don't have anything collecting any of the issues in today's episodes, but they can save you up to 47% off the cover price of their trades, hardcovers, omnibuses, absolute editions, essentials, showcases, masterworks, archives, and whatever other names companies give to books that collect more than one issue at a time. Check them out at InStockTrades.com and tell them Charlie sent you. It won't get you any more of a discount or anything, but the thought of the looks on their faces when they try to figure out who I am, that's pretty priceless. Next up, it's feedback time. And this one comes to us from our friend Russell Bragg, and he writes, Hello, Charlie and David. Can I call him Dave on this show or just on Dave's Daredevil podcast? Uh, You can call him Dave here as well. I'll allow it. Closer and closer we come to episode 100. Yeah, just a couple more episodes. I remember the cover to Superman 317 very well. I wish I had it in my current collection, but in due time, I suppose. To catch you up on my collection, by the time you read this, I will have a straight run of Superman 371 to 423. Thought of a question for you. I think we've determined on this show that the Bronze Age for Superman started with 233. But which Action Comics issue would coincide with the Bronze Age's beginning? Okay, I'm going to take a second to answer that. In my humble opinion, 
That was Action Comics number 393. Now that's the first issue not to be edited by Mort Weisinger that isn't just reprints. Murray Boltonoff takes over the editorial ship of that issue. It's the first time that Murphy Anderson and Kurt Swan work together on interior pages of the comic. So in my humble opinion, that's the start of the Bronze Age in Action Comics. And of course the start of the Bronze Age in World's Finest, which Superman was also appearing in, was, I believe, World's Finest number 198, which is where Julie Schwartz takes over as editor of that title as well. Uh, and Danny O'Neill's writing. I mean, you, you can almost follow along where I'm going there. But yeah, it's one uh, World's Finest number 198, which is another race, in fact, one of the final ones, between Superman and The Flash in the Bronze Age. So that's where I think they start. They, there's a lot of debate on that, but uh, if you want my opinion, that's where I think they start. Uh, let's see, different subject. Are you and Dave going to be recording together for the 100th episode? I hope so. You guys play off each other so well. Well, thanks. Uh, current plan is, yes, we will be uh, recording together for the 100th episode, covering a special extra-length comic book issue. Here's one for Dave out of curiosity. Actually, um, I'm going to stop there. Dave, uh, he's got a question for Dave. I completely forgot to actually pass that on to Dave. Sorry, Russell. Uh, so I will pass that on to him, and uh, hopefully we'll have an answer. he'll have an answer for you for the next episode. Again, I'm sorry, but I will get that to him. And there you go. Uh, better head off for now. Great synopsis of you both, and looking forward to episode 98. Well, thanks, Russell. And hopefully you're looking forward to episode 97, since that's the one that you're listening to right now. Uh, so I hope you don't mind listening to a couple more episodes, or to listening to this one before you get to 98. Uh, if you do, just kind of, you know, you can, well, I'd rather you didn't skip it. You'll be kind of lost when you get to the next episode. So, so thank you, Russell. All right. Uh, ne uh, next up. Promos! Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up! Up and away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Roger. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed. 
while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Paneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. All right, Superman number 318 had a cover date of December 1977 and an on-sale date of September 5th, 1977, with a cover price of 35 cents. The title of the story is The Wreck of the Cosmic Hound, written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Sheramonte, making his debut on the title, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julius Schwartz. This story begins in media race. Again. As Superman is basically eaten by the Cosmic Hound, a mysterious dog etched in pinpoints of alien energy. And as he slowly loses consciousness due to the overwhelming amounts of pain, his mind drifts back a few hours, conveniently to the end of last issue, where Lana Lang has just been introduced as Clark Kent's new co-anchor for the WGBS 6 o'clock news. As the meeting ended, Clark and Lana walked to his office, and we learned that Lana had been a foreign correspondent over in Europe, but she jumped at Edge's offer to return to Metropolis. After all, most of her friends are there, Lois Lane and Clark Kent. And if two is most, does that mean she only has one other friend that isn't in Metropolis? Isn't that kind of sad? As she recalled how his constant dashing away used to make her think that he was secretly Superboy when they were younger, Clark got a memo that meant that he needed to dash away. He succeeded in shooing Lana away, but not without her warning him that if he does this too often, her suspicions might return, which, if you ask me, is ridiculous because there's no way a grown man could be Superboy, but that's neither here nor there. The memo... The memo? The memo was from Professor Milius? Milius? The memo was from Professor Milius of the Olympus Observatory, asking Clark to contact Superman. So after a quick costume change, Superman flew out to the observatory, where the professor tells Superman about a strange light occurring out in space, which telescopic vision reveals to be on a direct line between Saturn and Uranus. I'm going to pause here so you can laugh. There you go. So he flew out to space, but as he passed Jupiter, he encountered a strange vapor cloud that made him dizzy, which, if you ask me, is just crazy, because I don't think you can have vapor in space, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, after he passed through the cloud, he spotted the light again, which turned out to be coming from a giant lamp on the other side of a hole in space orbiting a planet. Passing through the hole, Superman recognizes the planet below and realizes that the hole is some kind of space warp. A telescopic scan spotted what appeared to be a crashed ship, so he flew down to help out. But the planet was surrounded by some kind of barrier, and after Superman crashed into it, the glowing particles that made up the barrier rushed toward him, creating the form of a giant hound head, which then ate him, and now we return to the present to see Superman's unconscious body falling and then crashing to the planet below. This jolts him awake enough to see that he's surrounded by hundreds of dogs, and then he passes out again. When he comes to, 
again, he finds himself in a room, adorned with a Jolly Roger. Suddenly, a door opens and a female pirate in a hover chair enters the room, saying something about this being a new form of torment and that she knows how to deal with him and all this other stuff. Apparently she doesn't, though, because she hits Superman with an axe, which, of course, breaks on his superhuman body. While she wonders how an illusion can seem so real, we also get that she, or we also get to see that she has a peg leg because she had to stand up to swing the axe. Superman uses a combination of heat vision and super friction to smooth out and shine the axe blade to show that he can cast a reflection, which apparently illusions can't do, which actually makes sense. Next, introductions are made and we learn that she is, I'm going to call her Portia, a former intergalactic game hunter from the planet Aquaterra. Her ship was like an ark, and she used to go around studying alien life forms, or alien animal life forms until she fell into a trap one day that left her left eye blinded and her left leg crushed under a tree branch it turns out that on that planet she has had fallen victim to a people trap set up by canines who were the dominant species on that planet they helped her regain consciousness and turned off her pain receptors so that she could amputate her own leg apparently the dogs had limited psychic abilities but were unable to communicate with her However, they were soon found out, and since it appeared that harboring a human was some kind of a crime, she and her new canine friends were all exiled into space together, where they could apparently influence her body in certain significant ways. Which sounds a lot dirtier than it really is, trust me. And that light from earlier was basically a distress flare that she sent after her ship, the Cosmic Hound, crashed. And while this ends her story, the things that she said when she when Superman first wake up leave him thinking that she's hiding something. But before he can say anything about it, he's attacked by the dogs, who use their psychic ability to contain Superman in a cocoon made of the same glowing particles from before. But this time, Superman hasn't been weakened by a vapor cloud that shouldn't exist, meaning that he now has the power to bust out of the cocoon, which knocks all of the dogs out. Who knocked the dogs? Anyway... He then forces Portia to reveal the rest of her story. The dogs won't let her return to Aquaterra because while they have some really cool psychic abilities, they don't have the opposable thumbs necessary to pilot the ship, which is what they need her for. So Superman speeds inside, grabs a spacesuit, tell her to put, tells her to put it on, and flies her back to Aquaterra. But when they arrive, they see a planet in ruin. Apparently Superman's been to Aquaterra before, but knows it by another name. And about 300 years ago, radiation from a freak flare-up of the sun annihilated all life on the planet, which means Portia must be older than dirt. 347 years old, to be exact, which she reveals as she removes her helmet, looking a heck of a lot older than she was when she put it on. See, she left the planet because she was dying of some kind of contagious disease for which there was no cure. She had left to die on some barren planet and landed on the planet of the dogs, thinking it was uninhabited. Fortunately, the dogs are immune to her illness, and over the years, as their powers grew, they were able to keep her alive and young, premenopausal, so that she could continue piloting the ship. Now, I should point out that this whole time she's been talking, she's been getting older and older, and has gone from, we'll say, Lois Lane age to... Lois Lane's great-grandma age. Anyway, at this... Well, actually, anyone's great-grandma age. Whatever. Anyway, at this point, the Cosmic Hound appears overhead. Somehow, in just that short amount of time, the dogs recovered, repaired the ship, 
and learned how to fly it so that they could go to Aquaterra as well. She's afraid that they're going to take her again, but Superman decides that he won't let them, so he busts his way into the ship to stop them, but now they can communicate telepathically. Apparently, feedback from their assault on Superman somehow boosted their abilities, so they can now manipulate inanimate objects, such as the ship's controls, which is how they were able to fly it. Before Superman flew her back to Aquaterra, they read her mind and learned that she deliberately crashed the ship, hoping to die, and then used the flare, hoping that someone would rescue her from them which appears to be the case. So they have come to Aquaterra to help her die. Superman, not liking the sound of that and, you know, wanting to protect all life no matter what, flies back down to Portia, but is stopped by a wall of glowing particles before he can get to her. Unable to bust through the wall, he remembers a time from his Superboy days when Jonathan Kent told him that despite his power, he'll always be just a man, not a god, and that someday he may face a choice of life or death, and life may not always be the answer, for not even he can stay the hand of the Almighty. And so, after pondering all his options and realizing that there really is only one thing to, left to do, he turns away, allowing Portia to pass away, with her last words being, Thank you. Okay, not really a huge fan of this issue. The story was kind of boring, um, he had to let someone die, and it completely takes us away from all the intriguing stuff that was, has been going in, on in Metropolis and on Earth in the last several issues. I would have rather seen what Albert Michaels was up to, or spent a little more time focusing on Lana since she only just returned last issue and got shunted off again after just a couple of pages, and that was a flashback. That was a flashback. Uh, the art was pretty good, though. Charmanti will be the Kurtzwan inker for the next few years, so that kind of makes this feel like a monumental moment. Plus, this time, he seems to be trying to mimic Murphy Anderson's inking style a bit. It doesn't really look like his usual stuff. I like it, but it only appears to last for this one issue. Meanwhile, Swan makes the best of the story he's given. Now, Superman says he's been to Aquaterra before, but I can't find any references anywhere. So if anyone know, out there knows what he's talking about, please let me know. You can send an email to Superman. No, you can't, because that would be weird. You can send an email to superbronze1970 at gmail.com, and we'll see what we can... And uh, I will read it on the air, and we'll all learn together. Unless, of course, he never actually has been there, in which case, you know, I guess I won't get any emails. But that's it for that issue. So after a couple more promos, we'll be right back with Superman 319. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. 
Take the Dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Superman number 319 had a cover date of January 1978, an on-sale date of October 10th, 1977, and a cover price of 35 cents. There's a pattern there. I don't know if you've noticed that. The last several ones have been there. Anyway... How to Make a Marshland Monster was written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Sheramonte, lettered by Milt Snappen, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Our story begins not in media race this time. We actually get a start. Yes. Uh, but we begin in the city of New York, and no, this isn't a Marvel comic, where some purple particles merge into human form. Thinking... Yes, particles to think, that if it can decipher the meaning of the secret code word LDS, which is actually letters, not words, but whatever, it would be the key to limitless power. Then we shift ahead a week, and we shift our attention to Metropolis, where Morgan Edge is upset that the Daily Planet has scooped WGBS on a story about monsters in the sewer, which really isn't a huge deal since he owns both of them, but apparently this isn't his morning for being reasonable. He actually says that. And this has him wanting to talk to Clark Kent immediately, even though he's not due to work for another hour. Again, he's being unreasonable this morning. That could be hard to do, because he's actually Superman right now. And at that same moment, he's actually flying back to the Olympus Observatory on his way back from the Aquaterra from last issue to report to Professor Milius. Milius? What did I say it was? Professor Milius. About the strange light from last issue. But he's currently being visited by two men from the Pentagon, military intelligence, who have a mission for Superman. Apparently, they've learned that a lighthouse on government property on Mooney Island, which I'm hoping is named after Jim Mooney, uh, the artist that started off the Supergirl strip, plus, you know, is big over at Marvel because he worked a lot on Spider-Man and things, but mostly known for Supergirl over here at DC, will be attacked Oh, 0200 hours the next morning by frogmen from a foreign fishing boat that is currently out beyond the 200 mile limit. And before you think uh, that they think it's some kind of weird aliens, these are actually just, you know, scuba divers. That's what they call them, frogmen. Anyway, they say that they're after buried treasure buried beneath the lighthouse, but Superman thinks something fishy is going on, no pun intended. And since they won't give him any more information, he can't guarantee he'll do he can't guarantee he'll do anything more than look into the matter. Back in the city, Lois and Lana are sharing a taxi to work at WGBS, talking about how stupid it was for Lois to say she'd only marry Clark if he admitted he was Superman, and how she feels like a creep about it. But their conversation is interrupted when their cab starts moving up instead of forward. Flying overhead on his way to WGBS, Superman hears them scream and flies down to the rescue, only to see a slime-covered monster carrying the taxi. 
After the monster swats him away, Superman uses super suction to suck the gas cap off the back of the taxi, then suck the gasoline out of the taxi, and then uses super suction and super speed to make it float around the monster, and then uses his heat vision on the fuel to surround the monster with a ring of fire, a ring of fire. And that's the best I'm going to do at singing, so I'm going to stop. This ring of fire contains the monster long enough to Yeah, this ring of fire contains the monster long enough for Superman to grab the taxi and kick the monster into a nearby fountain. After checking on the girl reporters, they're all shocked when the monster emerges from the fountain, cleaned of the muck, and is revealed to be a very naked, very angry Solomon Grundy. Quickly, Superman deduces that this isn't the original, but a new Earth-1 Solomon Grundy, one that looks like a kiss reject and talks like the Hulk. Superman punches Grundy, but is quickly grabbed by his cape and flung around and smashed into the ground. Then, Grundy starts flinging him around in the air, kind of like a helicopter. Um, yeah, by the cape. A little heat vision loosens Grundy's gip. Gip. A little heat vision loosens Grundy's grip, but leaves Superman flung through a building and high into the sky before he can stop himself. After he does so, he repairs the building, checks on the conditions of the bystanders inside, and then finds that Grundy has disappeared back into the sewers. Leaving the powerful monster to roam the sewers, Superman heads to WGBS, changes to Clark, and delivers the story of the Superman-Grundy fight to Morgan Edge, just as, they just as they bump into Lois and Lana, who have apparently changed their clothes. I guess they messed themselves in the excitement? I don't know. Where Lana reveals that she called in a film crew and they got footage of the fight to go with Clark's story, leaving Lois looking stupid for being double-scooped. Also, just as Lois is about to invite Clark to lunch to apologize for the whole marriage proposal thing, Clark invites Lana to lunch at the little French restaurant that Lois introduced him to a few issues ago where they make the best beef bourguignon, leaving Lois to vow to treat him worse than she's ever treated him before. All this while a monster roams the sewers. That night, in the sewers of underneath Metropolis where a monster is roaming, Grundy thinks, yes, this is a Grundy that thinks, that he knows how to beat Superman. But first, he wants to put on some clothes. You know, like the original Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy wants pants too! When he emerges from the sewer to get some clothes, Superman, out on his nightly patrol after seemingly forgotten that a monster was roaming the sewers, spots him but doesn't confront him until the monster has found the perfect torn and tattered suit combo so that he looks exactly like the original Solomon Grundy. After learning that this Grundy was born from the muck that the original had left behind during his visit in a pre-Marty Pasco issue of Superman, but wondering how sunlight could hit the muck and start the process while in the sewers, because you see the original Solomon Grundy was born in a swamp on Earth 2 and the muck had some kind of special chemical in it, and when sunlight hit it, and a dead body was in the watt was in the muck, uh, that body became Solomon Grundy and kind of a zombie thing. So this is a very similar thing, except this happened all happened in the sewer. So how did sunlight get down there? That's the question. So while he's wondering all that, Superman flies around behind Grundy to take him down. But Grundy gets some kind of a supercharge from a strange beam of light that no one notices, not even me, until the caption points it out, causing Superman to just bounce off. Literally. Like Spider-Man bouncing off of Superman, he just bounces off. As Grundy once again picks up Superman by the cape, Superman notices that it's now 2 a.m., which is 
when that lighthouse was supposed to be invaded. Bet you forgot about that one, didn't you? Because I know I sure did. Anyway, a quick scan of telescopic vision reveals that it's being invaded right now by a large robotic octopus. This kind of demands Superman's attention as well, but he can't get out of Grundy's grasp, even though Grundy's literally just kind of standing there holding him by the cape, apparently not doing anything. Meanwhile, up above, the parasite, remember the thinking purple particles? Yeah, it's, that was parasite. Reveals that he had used his power prism, something else that he got in one of the pre-Marty Pasco issues, to activate the muck to create the new Grundy, and also to give Grundy that little boost a moment ago. Now that he knows what LDS means, which again is letters, not words, but whatever, Superman must be annihilated so that he can't interfere when the parasite gains control of the country's greatest secret weapon. Next time, the secret of the LDS and the truth behind the Mooney Island Lighthouse. How are they part of the absolute power play of the parasite? You'll have to wait until next episode to find out, un un unless you just want to read the issues. But that would not be fair. Or fun, really. Okay. Now this issue was a little better. I don't have page-by-page -page notes on this one either, but, well, I mean, we're back in Metropolis, so that makes me happy. Uh, now we've got an Earth-1 Grundy, and he's given Superman a run for his money, and that's pretty cool, because I like it when you've got a supervillain that can actually be a physical match for our Man of Steel. And that didn't happen too much pre-crisis. Although, I seem to find a lot of instances of it. Anyway, not sure why Superman thought it wouldn't hurt anything to leave a giant monster roaming the sewers. I don't know if you noticed that when I was saying that. I mean, doesn't he realize all the plumbing problems he could cause? Not to mention all the poo water that he could fling on to, up on the surface? I mean, yuck. Anyway, so the parasites returned, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he has planned. I started to think that Superman being skeptical of the U.S. government was a bit out of character, but two things that I thought about changed my mind. First, this is only a few years after the end of the whole Watergate scandal, so that wound is probably still a bit fresh, and everyone was kind of skeptical of the U.S. government at that point, including, possibly, Marty Pasco. Uh, secondly, calling in Superman to prevent the Reds, as they actually say on there, uh, from getting a buried treasure also seems a bit fishy. Again, the pun is not intended, but I can see where it was coming from. As for the art, I have to give some props to Swan on this one. For someone who's not known for his flashy fight scenes, these actually look really good. And you can really see the power in the punches and in the slams and in the passing through buildings. The quiet scenes are also nice, and you can really see the pain in Lois's face when she decides that she's mad at Clark and is going to, like, treat him mean. Careful, Clark. And while Shiramonte is using his normal inking style here, rather than imitating Anderson, it doesn't hurt the art much, so that's also a plus. And that's going to do it for my part of the show. So next up, Dave Weider presents DC Comics Presents number 23, featuring a team-up between Superman and Dr. Fate. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. A scarlet costume ejects from his ring. And in a blur of motion, police scientist Barry Allen 
flash through the magic alchemy of nature's most awesome sources of energy ray power atomic physicist becomes the atom i am already of the mystic guardians of the universe on the far distant planet or al jordan's test pilot becomes the green lantern Welcome to another all-new edition of Dave Weeder Presents, looking at the team-up tales between the Man of Steel and the greater DC Universe in the pages of DC Comics Presents. This time around, the Man of Steel once again tangles with magic, this time thanks to a visit from the one, the only, Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate, at least in this incarnation, is actually Kent Nelson who opened the tomb of Naboo. Not the planet from Star Wars, but rather a wizard. Now sadly, the tomb was booby-trapped and some poison gas killed Kent's father, you know, that whole thing. Taking pity on the orphan Kent, Naboo taught him magic and gave him a cloak, an amulet, and most importantly, a golden helmet. Nelson returned home to the U.S. and fought the supernatural alongside his wife, Inza Nelson. Existing on the Golden Age era Earth 2, fate would go on to found the Justice Society of America and become a legendary DC hero. Now the issue at hand, the one we're actually covering, is the July 1980 issue of DC Comics Presents, issue 23, which features a story entitled, The Curse Out of Time. It was written by Denny O'Neill with art by Joe Staten. And the issue boasts a cover showing Dr. Fate peering into a crystal ball to see Superman in green, glowing chains, being forced to row a boat. And Fate basically says that if he doesn't find a way to break the evil spell that Superman is under, the Man of Steel may be cursed to row for all eternity. Well, that's an attention-getting cover. It opens with Dr. Fate and Inza on Earth 2, searching through time and space within a crystal ball for a ship. Now, the ship was commanded by Inza's ancestor, and Dr. Fate is stunned to see that it has been lost somehow, some way, to time and space. Now, the main problem with this is that the ship holds the key to a curse on Inza's family, a curse that is turning her into basically a Two-Face-looking monster. As in Harvey Two-Face, Batman villain, you know what I'm saying. Meanwhile, on Earth-1, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are speaking with a Star Lab scientist about a new device that will prove that matter has the ability to think. Do not... Think too hard on that one. It's not important to the plot whatsoever. The machine itself is more of a deus ex machina, and it starts doing some odd things. As an image of a ship appears, it gets bigger and bigger until the ship itself breaks out of the machine and out of the building itself. On the street, Clark Kent sees the ship bursting out of Star Labs and changes into Superman flying up to the sky to check out the vessel. Upon reaching the ship, Superman is accosted by the captain, whose name is Hawkins, and Hawkins is convinced that Superman is a magic trick by somebody named El Muchacho. And he challenges the Man of Steel to a sword fight. And of course, Superman quickly wins that fight. Unfortunately, the ship's crew have taken Lois Lane hostage. So Superman must surrender for her sake and allow himself to be chained up. Switching back to Earth 2, Dr. Fate has found the lost ship where Superman is now a prisoner. So he hops into a dimension between Earths where he meets a magic imp who is not Mixus Pitalik. Rather, this guy is El Muchacho. There's a brief battle between Fate and Muchacho, and Muchacho ends up fleeing as Dr. Fate continues to Earth-1 to aid Superman. The Man of Steel, meanwhile, has gotten tired of rowing the flying ship and is about to break free when he realizes that the chains that bind him are magical, so he's stuck. He's out of luck. Hawkins explains that the imp El Muchacho placed a curse on him, the same curse that is afflicting Inza. See how that works? The ship reaches Metropolis City Hall as a police helicopter arrives, threatening to shoot the vessel down. Oh, and El Muchacho shows up and changes the ship's oars into water. That means the boat is crashing down. And Dr. Fate arrives just in time to stabilize the ship and set it down on land softly. And Superman's chains lose their magical charm so he can break free and do all kinds of Superman things. 
But after Hawkins unsuccessfully shoots the invulnerable Superman and breaks his cutlass on the skin of the last son of Krypton, Dr. Fate whisks the ship and El Muchacho away back to Earth 2. And then Dr. Fate takes off too, leaving Superman just a little bit confused. Later, Lois laments that she can't remember the story she wanted to write. As Dr. Fate returns home to find Inza is cured of the curse of the ship, and the crew, ship, everything are put back in their places. And the issue ends. I'm not gonna lie. Upon my initial read, I thought that this issue was going to be another dud, but I gave it another complete reread before doing my notes, and it's admittedly all over the place. That much is true. But it deals with a lot of aspects that could have ground the whole issue to a halt altogether instead of leaving me scratching my head a bit. For one thing, the multiverse. There was no Dr. Fate in the main DC Earth until after Crisis on Infinite Earths, and the multiple Earths could have been a headache to even touch or mention. But it is put forth very matter-of-factly, and we move on. These things happen. Earth 2 happens. Another aspect is simply magic. Since magic can be shown in any way with little to no internal logic, this could have been a train wreck or a shipwreck, I guess would be more appropriate. And don't get me wrong, this isn't the gold standard of DC Comics Presents issues, but it does fit the character of Dr. Fate, and that's the key. Dr. Fate is a Golden Age hero who still fits into the realm of Golden Age timelines, and this is a full-on Golden Age tale spilling into the mainstream Bronze Age DC universe. And that is the genius of this particular issue. Now sure, it's not the most immediately clear thesis of the story, but after some thought, it becomes the central reason of why I liked it in the end. And I mean, if you're going to do a Golden Age pastiche, there are very few artists better to have on deck than Joe Staten. And Staten really brings home the bacon in this issue, and becomes one of the strongest linchpins in making the concept work. Basically, this Golden Age precept, this Golden Age style, is coming into our mainstream. Staten's style has a lot of detail with a slight cartoon swoosh mixed in and tinges of darkness fitting the realm of the supernatural. It's really clear now why he was the one to take over to the Dick Tracy newspaper strip as he naturally fits that tone. So let's clear the air on what wasn't great about the issue. El Muchacho. He's a Mixus-Pitalik ripoff. And I don't know if you're in a Superman comic why O'Neill doesn't just use the readily available fifth dimensional imp. I mean, you've got one in the toolbox there, Denny. Hawkins and his crew feel ho-hum. The threat is never clear with them, and they're not really the villains. In fact, there isn't one real villain. Muchacho counts, but he's not much of a threat in a lot of ways. And, of course, the fact that we are never told what is occurring. At least not full-on, but we are given the pieces to put together, which makes this a reading challenge. And a solid ride, I won't lie. It wasn't the straightforward fun of the Adam's turn as a guest star, but it definitely redeems O'Neill for the lackluster Green Arrow issue. But I'm out of time for this episode, so I'm going to hand it back over to Charlie Niemeyer because I have some hot wings waiting on the monitor duty station. Thank you, Dave. And thus ends another episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. Next time, judging by the issue covers, Superman and Grunny continue their fight, and Superman's powers go a bit out of control. Plus, Superman teams up with the alien Starman against Mongol. That's in episode 98, Russell. That's next time. This is 97, but thank you. Which should be dropping sometime in the next two weeks. And now, here's the outro. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. You can also find the show on Stitcher Smart Radio, as well as Facebook, where you can get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. 
Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network at www.comicspodcasts.com. Please make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you so much for listening and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. <laughs>